Fires on the plane illuminates the plight of Japanese soldiers, all but abandoned in the Philippines toward the end of World War II. Trying to evacuate, with no clear command structure, no resources, and no food, their Imperial Army is scattered and lawless. Director Kan Ichikawa went to remarkable extremes to make this film back in 1959. Actors were underfed and mistreated in order to pull off performances that look authentically crazed and starving. The film follows Private Tomura, whose tuberculosis makes him too weak to fight. His commander offers him a choice, get admitted to the overburdened field hospital or commit suicide with a grenade. When the hospital is destroyed, Tomura sets off on an odyssey across the island, encountering soldiers in varying states of starvation and insanity. Americans are glimpsed only briefly, and the Japanese appear to envy their wealth more than hold any animosity. The film climaxes with an extended set piece involving two other soldiers who have conspired to kill Private Tamura using his own grenade and then to eat him. After escaping, Tamura is finally killed approaching the fires on the plains, which have fascinated him throughout the film. This profoundly agonizing story resonated with us as a remarkable work of art. It's also the first foreign language film on the podcast. Tune in as we look on as another culture meditates on its own relationship with war and suffering. Try a little salt on today's film, Fires on the Plain. Welcome to Friendly Fire. It's a show whose hosts are ready to be sold on the idea of surrender. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Guys, I thought I knew I thought I knew what a bleak war movie was when I saw <laughs> yeah. the Deer Hunter. But Fires on the Plain makes Deer Hunter look like hot shots. I don't know if I'll ever be the same after this. <laughs> I, I was reading that like it was too bleak for everybody when it came out. Like they'd never seen anything like it. I have today never seen anything like it. <laughs> it's bleak from start to finish. Even the rickles of this movie has gangrene. <laughs> <laughs> what you don't want is a gangrenous rickles. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, gangrene is but one of a rich tapestry of illnesses we encounter in this movie. Is it better that it's black and white for that reason? I mean, I, I, was, I was feeling very blessed that it wasn't in smell vision Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the black and whiteness of it was a reoccurring handhold for me throughout the film because there are times... When it's such a beautiful film, and it really is beautiful throughout, there are shots that I don't usually, in the course of a film, say, well, that's a, that was 30 seconds that got inside me just from the, just from the filmmaking. Um, but yeah, there, was, there were other moments where the black and whiteness made it somewhat unclear exactly what we were seeing, particularly in a movie like this where, like, where blood is playing a large role. Lighting for black and white is so different than lighting for color. And you get that a lot in the faces in this film. Like the faces are are almost spotlit in a couple of the scenes, but in a really pleasant way. They really are. It's I I watched the trailer for a remake of this movie that came out in 2014. The thing that was so striking about it was how bad the camera work looked because it's digital and there's, you know, like every time the camera moves in this film, it's perfectly executed, flawless dolly work, uh, you know, flawless swiveling. Every every focus rack is like super intentional and flawlessly executed. And that's just not how movies are made anymore. Like nobody has the time or money to nail things in the way that this movie is nailed. The lead actor is himself so beautiful that from the moment he appears on screen, you know, your eye is just drawn to him and he's, he plays this role Kabuki like I was revealed to me how little I know about Japanese theater, because I noticed that too, Ben, just the perfection in the, in the mechanics of the filmmaking. But I felt like it was referencing things in Japanese theater mm. a lot of the time that I didn't have the vocabulary to understand. So often 
uh, Tamura, our main character, is walking towards the camera, walking towards you. Like his issues are inescapable to the viewer because they are always facing front. You know, you're never going with him. He's always coming at you. And in that way, like the, the indignities that he suffers are inescapable as well. It's a bit like in Fight Club when uh, when Brad Pitt beats up What's-His-Face and says that he wants wanted to destroy something beautiful. Like this, this movie is so relentless about any character that has any scrap of hopefulness or joie de vivre in the early scenes is is like totally and utterly rent by the end of this. It wasn't right. Brad Pitt I mean, that did that in that movie though, by the way. BTW. Oh, was it uh was it Edward Norton? Is that on our list, Fight Club? <laughs> is that a war movie? I, I wanna I wanna stipulate to our listeners though, who have not seen the film, we're talking about its bleakness, but there isn't a ton of gore and there isn't a ton of action. But it's that really gives of... you time to think, too, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it does. <laughs> I think it, it, it enhances the bleakness the more time you're given to consider it. And what I was considering throughout the movie was, like, what are the things you can take away from a person? Like, what's the maximum amount of things you can take away from a person and have them still retain some sort of essential humanity? The answer is everything. Uh, what if someone took your last yam, Adam? Have you ever eaten a raw yam? <laughs> Even an undercooked yam is not great, John. Not I great th- at I all. Think, uh, I think I've got Ben Harrison's nickname for the show. <laughs> <laughs> undercooked yam. <laughs> I mean, That's and, weird. My wife called me that this morning. <laughs> an undercooked yam makes gangrenous flesh look delicious. Well, that one scene where the guy was sitting and gnawing on a raw yam... Just yeah. like a, just gnawing on it like a rabbit. I was yeah. like, huh, I could do that. I could, if pushed to the line, sit and gnaw on a yam. That's good to know. I didn't know that before. Ugh. I had never encountered the idea of being like thirsty for salt. Yeah. And everybody in this movie is so, so, so salt depleted that when he finds like a huge bag full of salt, it, it becomes currency for him. And and people drink it like water, like they have handfuls of salt crystals that they pour into their mouth with relief. Yeah, the, the one instance in this entire film where we see someone cry, he is crying with joy at the taste of salt. This was the film that inspired the beverage Dasani, right? The only, the only <laughs> bottled water with sodium in it. The only bottled water <laughs> that's filtered through a dead raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that really struck me too. And uh, it has to be a thing because it was portrayed. But this is, this is a thing that I've never seen portrayed in any other war movie, in any other film about poverty. Uh, like, I can't remember ever seeing salt used as both a currency and a medicine and something that is able to quench a need for for someone on the verge of death. It came as a surprise to me. It's a major theme in the film Gandhi. You know, the British had monopolized or, or yeah, monopolized the production of salt and Gandhi led his followers to the ocean and said, we can make our own salt. It was part of the the artisanal craftsmanship of uh, the sort of Gandhi movement. He was all about artisanal, <laughs> home, you know, like locally made, locally sourced things. Man, me too. I guess I'm a lot like Gandhi. This is the first film we've watched that's been told from the perspective of you know, a people that we were at war with, like the the other side in this movie is the Americans. And uh, I think it is. it may also be the, I guess it, maybe the, maybe First Blood is the other one where it's the losing side that's, that's uh, being portrayed. If you can call Rambo a loser, which I don't <laughs> think you can. I well, fucking dare you, Ben. I was thinking more like uh, the kind of American 
soldier that is that Rambo stands for as yeah having been on the on the on the losing end but um i mean this this movie is not comforting a japanese public about like what their what their boys went through in that war at all the standard view now is that the japanese nation has had a really hard time reckoning with what happened in world war 2 and that there's a lot of atrocity denial that the story is taught in Japanese schools with a lot of missing pieces and they, you know, pray themselves heroically, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that is the news that we get here in the United States. And, you know, and I think we accept that story because we don't have any other, we're not getting a second story. And, and that is definitely the story that the Korean nation tells about Japan and Japan's, you know, reluctance or unwillingness to confront what they did to the Koreans. But then you get this film, which came out in 1959 and there's no shying away from at least, um, the bright light that is shown on the idea that the individual soldiers no longer had the luxury of behaving with honor. Yeah. Cause Tamura, our main character, I mean, he starts getting some orders to like report to the field hospital for tuberculosis and on the likely scenario that they turn him away because they're too overloaded with actual wounded soldiers. He is to take a grenade and blow himself up. And by the end of the movie, everybody is basically trying to decide between whether we eat our dead or not. Yeah. The, the symbology of that, grenade kept changing throughout and i couldn't ever stop thinking about it one of the first bits of dialogue from the entire movie is that order that tamura is given which is kill yourself only if you have to and so i saw the entire movie through the lens of that question when is he going to do it when does he have to and to me it that moment appeared so many times throughout the movie but what was the variable in that was the changing the changing identity of the grenade and what it represented throughout. I kept hoping that he would die just to, <laughs> just to ease his suffering. It was such a strange feeling to have for your main character and your hero. The opening scene is him getting chewed out by the squad leader. Unblinking, too. And it's so unnecessary. He like walks over to the quartermaster right after that. And, and the quartermaster like kind of reiterates everything the <laughs> squad leader just said, but in like much more efficient language and much less like direct exposition. I couldn't understand. I could never go back and place that lecture in any kind of context later. It, it still sticks out like a sore thumb because so much of the film is just in silence or no speaking. And it was so unnecessary to lay lay out the film. Like nothing that, nothing that got yelled at in the beginning was relevant yeah. later. <laughs> it was they just, could have just had a shot of, of, of space and yellow text crawling up it with that information. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so often a movie has to teach you what it is in that first scene. And like, sort of ground your expectations in the way it's going to tell its story. But like 40 minutes into the movie, we get our first voiceover from Tamara also, which, which came out of nowhere to me. And I was like, I didn't know this was going to be a voiceover movie because <laughs> frequently in a film with voiceover, we start with voiceover so that, you know, as a viewer, like how it's going to, to reveal itself. Well, not just voiceover, but like, like in real time, voice yeah. of the mind. Yeah. And that voice of the mind comes into the film debating with himself about whether or not he should use the grenade. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it was like such a brilliant, he's saying to himself, why did I just fill up my canteen? I'm going to die today with this grenade. What I took away from that is this is him kind of taking his first dive into being crazy. I mean, before that, he's very desperate and, you know, suffering and in a tough spot. But, but the true, like, desperation of the situation has just befallen him, which is like, he, like, ran back to 
either like help people in the hospital or loot the hospital for food and witnesses American bombs raining down on these buildings as invalids struggle to flee and are caught in the explosion. Like, this is a really bad thing to do in a war, right? Like, blow up a hospital. <laughs> like, like our country is still constantly getting in trouble for doing this. And Well, it's one uh, of our American tricks, right? <laughs> Indiscriminate bombing. Yeah. I mean, it. you know, like, it doesn't entirely indict the Americans, but this is a... Like a thing that I'm, I'm sure is based on a real situation and uh, feels bad to see. Like we don't, we don't show ourselves bombing hospitals in in our World War II movies. The the interesting thing about the portrayal of the Americans in this film to me was kind of two things. When we hardly ever see the Americans, and when we do, they're not portrayed that much differently than we would portray ourselves in a war movie like here come the americans and they're like <laughs> hey hurry up you jack damn bastard like hamburger hamburger bang bang when i watched them go by i was like yeah that's about it <laughs> you know like that's kind of how we roll bunch of us in in trucks and uh and we're making a lot of noise and we're kind of fat wow but what you noticed in this movie maybe more than any other world war ii movie the reason america was so powerful at this time and remains so powerful is that we have we have a material abundance so when they are out there like fighting over raw or undercooked yams the americans even though we are eight thousand miles from home we're just rolling in plenty one of my favorite novels, uh, Cryptonomicon, describes the American military not so much as a a warfighting uh, force as a system for moving equipment and stuff all over the planet and burying our enemies in it. Yeah, and that's exactly – I think that's how – when history looks at World War II, history increasingly says, well, the Soviet Union was able to throw 12 million – men into their graves as just a like well life is cheap and the germans had all this technology and all this uh, strategy and scheme but uh just from a strict like access to resources standpoint they just could not manufacture they just they didn't have enough gas they didn't have enough oil they didn't have enough capacity and mm-hmm. the british were also just incredibly limited and the japanese their big problem was spread all the way out but how do they get stuff to those places where is the gasoline going to come from and how from the tiny nation of japan can they get the resources to build all this stuff meanwhile america who had no plans for war who america was just isolationist and dumb uh got bombed one time and then within a year was producing 42 aircraft carriers a week <laughs> and every, you know, all these Rosie, the riveters. And pretty soon we're just like, Oh, we're supplying material to the Russians, to the British. Like we funded the entire, the entire allied side. So I just felt like that scene of bombing the hospital, it was, le- it was less portrayed as a um, atrocity as far because there's there weren't there weren't any flags flying that indicated it was a hospital. It was just a bunch of grass shacks, right? Yeah. So what it said to me was the Americans are just out there and they are indiscriminately able to rain bombs down upon anywhere. Well, it's so interesting to see that from like a- after we watched Flying Leathernecks, which is about Americans in this same campaign, you know, feeling desperate for resources and the comparison is so laughable like it's crazy right they have a cake yeah and flying the leather next the guy steals a cake <laughs> <laughs> oh man we we hardly have any food i had to steal this cake from the marines yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk. Okay. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. That hospital scene really affected me in a specific way because, like, frequently in a war film or an action film, you will get an attempt to escape a fate. But the wide shot of the hospital as the bombs fall shows sick and injured people just sort of laying on the deck, laying on the ground outside, not making an attempt to leave. Like, it doesn't even give you a shred of hope of survival for these people. Like, it is over in a hopeless way. Just like, like this whole film is such a tone poem. Like, when they're, when they're looking at the American GIs drive by, they don't even regard them so much as the enemy as, like, as a bunch of lucky dudes. The things that they lack. Like, look at how fat and <laughs> yeah. happy they are. Oh, man, wouldn't that be great? Look at the, look at the, the chaplain in his clean Jeep. He must be nice. Well, yeah, they're you know? coveting him, aren't they? They're just like, yeah. oh, could we go down and would he rescue us? Like if we if we surrendered to him? Well, this movie is very relentlessly dark. It also has like some amazing moments of comedy. And one in particular I wanted to talk about was the scene where the guy comes along and finds a pair of pretty good boots on the ground and changes out of them out of his beat up boots into the good boots. And then like the next guy comes along and finds those boots and they're better than the boots he's wearing. And by the end, our, our, our main character uh, comes along and finds uh, just boots that have all of the parts of boots, except for the bottom part. (laughs) And, And, uh, decides to just go barefoot from there on. I mean, that's, uh, that is not barefoot is not the way to go on a, uh, on a jungly Island from what I understand. I did not view that through a comedy lens, (laughs) (laughs) but, but in a film like this, like you, you grasp for that, like, like a, like a life raft, like any, any bit of levity is, is so crucial here. Yeah, I mean, like, it really starts as a comedy thing, and, like, this, like when he holds the boot up and holds, like, looks through the bottom of it for this extended period of time, like, it's, it's definitely being played for something other than, like, abject tragedy. Can we talk about the dog-killing sequence for a moment? Like, as, as, we're, uh, as we're describing all of our favorite moments of comedy from this film... <laughs> there is a scene where where a stuffed dog is thrown a, over Tamura's shoulder in like in a scene that evokes the squirrel jumping from the tree in Christmas Vacation, <laughs> and then in a quickly edited like five shot sequence, he bayonets the dog out of midair and then watches as it bleeds out. Why didn't he eat the dog? It's a good question. Also, it was a another scene in which 
bayonet fighting, kind of like Zulu. Yeah. Bayonet fighting is so hard to depict realistically mm-hmm. that we see the dog that they have procured to make this film. And that dog is just panting with a friendly smile. Yeah. <laughs> the dog is not growling even. He's just sort of standing there panting. And I thought, oh, a friendly dog. Maybe <laughs> maybe the dog is going to be his companion for the rest of this film. And I won't feel so full of despair. The death of that dog was instructive about how the movie was going to use blood, I thought. Because hmm. it is blood on the face. It is blood on the ground in a in a make a bowl out of your hands, dip it in the bucket of blood and just sort of throw it kind of way. This is not this is not like heroic bleeding that anyone gets to do that is ever depicted in the film. Like it is gross and not cool looking and and real. It that part of it read as real to me. It's it's always like very upsetting and it it like you know it gets on his face it's it's repulsive. It like counterpoints the moment where he washes himself in that fountain too. Like you can only experience the ec- ecstasy of the fountain if you have also experienced the horror of dog blood on your face. You could tell even the moment that the blood the dog's blood splattered on him, he wanted it off. He wanted that blood off and he still had like that much humanity that he went to clean himself. But at the end of the film, there's another scene where a character has blood all over his face and is making no attempt to even wipe it off. Well, let's talk about the end. It's Yasuda and Nagamatsu and they're introduced uh, outside the hospital, right? They're like among the, the malingerers. Among the people who, who are, like, not sufficiently sick to pass the triage into the hospital, but are too, are too fucked up to be, you know, taking part in whatever their units are supposed to be doing. And so they just sit around under these trees near the hospital and, you know, chew on yams and complain about things. And Tamura keeps bumping into them at, uh, at the middle point. Nagamatsu is trying to sell tobacco leaves that Yasuda has hidden in his shirt. And they've like, they've got this scheme that they'll sell enough tobacco leaves to get yams to survive. Uh, but Yasuda's leg is too messed up to, to get them to the evac that everybody's trying to get to. That's how the Rockefellers and, actually got started. John D. Rockefeller was trading tobaccos <laughs> for yams. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I was I was recently at Rockefeller Center, or as we call it in New York, the house that Yams built. That's that's the way that multi-level marketing has always been explained to me. It's like if you just <laughs> trade your red paperclip for some yams, you can turn those yams into a building in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if your friends get seven friends to sell yams to their seven friends, right. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to work with your friends and family? <laughs> so, yeah, these two guys, we, we meet them at the hospital. Yeah, and we meet them again in the kind of desperate march to the, to the evac point scene. And then at the end, Tamura runs back into them. And by this point, Nagamatsu has been like a total, he's been a total, like, totally deferential to Yasuda, is now become a lot more detached and is is basically saying he's using Yasuda for as long as he can until he can eat him and move on. Yeah, Nakamatsu really underwent a uh, a transformation in this film. He, he's a sweet guy at the beginning. Yeah, kind of like when I first met Adam Pranica. <laughs> sweet guy, just trying to survive. You know, I hadn't seen this movie before yesterday, and I never understood how you called me sort of the Nagamatsu of your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and so like Yasuda and Nagamatsu are using the using using the euphemism of monkey meat meat. uh, (laughs) to conceal the fact that they are openly eating people. Although although he doesn't for a second 
by the monkey meat argument. Yeah, I sort of wondered about it because he does get a piece of it in his mouth and is like unable to eat it. But I kind of don't think he would have put it in his mouth if he had kind of put together what the meat was. Right. A brief moment, yeah, where he was like, oh, I'll, I'll accept that monkey meat. I mean, if, if I you're were hungry enough to eat a raw yam, I think you're going to eat that that human meat. Well, except that except that when he discovered when he realized it was human, he wanted no part of it. At the at the I mean the final scene, he could have eaten Yasuda, but instead he kills Nagamatsu. What are yeah. you saying? And Adam? Nagamatsu it looks looks like a ghoul by this point. This he whole does. issue is emblematic of of a thing I was feeling throughout the film, which was not a lot. And here's why. Like, <laughs> to, to feel, like, true grief or hopelessness or whatever, like, I need to also have the counterpoint. Like, I need to feel a little bit of hope and then to lose that hope in order to feel hopeless. Like, that's the sort of cycle. Like, to really get down into a good bit of grief. And... That moment when Tamura spits out the monkey meat didn't really move the needle for me because at that point we have been through an hour and a half of the most bleakest, the bleakest form of life that that you could see depicted on film. That like at that point, the horror of that didn't move the needle at all for me. Like, oh, I guess I guess they're resorting to cannibalism. That sounds about right. Like that's that's the end of the line here. And for a film to never present any glimpse of hope, there was never hope for Tamura from the start. And I think that would have really helped me feel some disgust for him at that moment, but I didn't. I wish I did, but I couldn't, I couldn't muster any feeling about it. I was just sort of numb. Is that how you guys felt? I guess my experience is a little different. I, I sort of felt like the... It was kind of a stair step down till the end where there would be points where he got little glimpses of hope, like he found running water to wash the dog blood off his face. Or, you know, he ran into a bunch of guys who were standing on a field that was rich with yams. And every step forward he takes is counteracted with two steps back, you know. And, um, like, by the time he runs into... Yasuda and Nagamatsu for the final time, he has lost any legitimate hope of surviving and going home. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think you like, if, if the movie has you at that point and, and has, uh, convinced you just to stay and see what, what happens after somebody has lost all hope. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting 20 or 30 minutes to watch. And, and maybe most interesting because right at the end, he decides to walk up to the signal fires he's been seeing all through the movie to see what it is. And it is a moment of hope. He wants to see people living normal lives and he's very close to doing it when he's gunned down by one of them. Unclear, you know, unclear who he's gunned down by the way that it was portrayed where the bullets were landing my feeling was it was coming from behind him that it was, yeah. you know, that, that because of that threat he received from the squad leader at one point that if he tried to surrender, he would kill him. I mean, it, it was unclear to me who, who shot him. I'm not saying it wasn't, it wasn't the obvious take, but yeah, Adam, I, I agree with Ben. Like there was the, the whole film seemed to be like just, teasing us with these hopeful moments when he when he linked up with those soldiers on the yam field it was like all right you can come with us and that guy seemed really in charge and that he knew where they were going but what was tantalizing was that there were a couple of moments in the film where where our hero there was a glimpse that he was more than just a private first class right when he when he when he talks to the squad leader in the yam field the squad leader says boy, it's been a long time since I heard such fancy talk. Hmm. And it was kind of a little glimpse that Tamura was not, he, th there was more to him, right? That he was, uh, that he was sophisticated. Yeah. And then as they're watching the Americans go by and he reads the English words on the chaplain's van, 
and the and the guy next to him is like, "You know English?" And he he makes no he doesn't even reply to it. But we're left sort of again tantalized by his backstory and he's educated, he speaks English maybe. It it, it those scenes made me feel even more like, "Oh, this this character is not just a cipher. He I want him to survive because I'm curious about him. I want to find out. I want him to go down and talk to the chaplain and discover that he speaks English. Like, wouldn't that blow your mind? On, uh, uh, I was, that was so sure end? that we were going to get that moment. Yeah, like, me too. When, when they planted that he spoke English, I was like, this is Chekhov's gun right here. Like, this dude is going to be talking English to some, to some American POW jailers at the end of this movie. When the end came, I had lost all hope. I was just like, okay, fine. Uh, But right up until then, with that last heroic moment of shooting, shooting his cannibalistic pal and turning and, and heading to the signal, signal fires felt like he still had some little thing inside of him that was keeping him going. Of course he was a fool. (laughs) We should all just, he should have laid down with that (laughs) grenade in his, you know, the very start of the film could have saved us all two hours <laughs> the way he puts that at the end though about like he wants to find someone who is leading a normal life that was an interesting way to put it because like in no way will he ever be able to do that he just wants to witness it you know he doesn't want to lead a normal normal life himself he just wants to know that that is that's in the world somewhere <laughs> Did you guys like this movie? I did. Um, I I was really gripped by it in a way that I did not expect. You know, the pacing of movies from the late 50s and the pacing of movies that are, you know, created outside of your native culture don't always grab you in that way. But uh, for me, this one did. I found I really wanted to find out what happened to this character. And it's definitely not <laughs> fast-paced or or gripping in the, you know, Jason Bourne action movie sense. But I, I found it very affecting. And I think it's kind of a, an amazing artifact. There was that scene where Tamura ran flat out for two hours before getting winded. <laughs> <laughs> that was exciting. Yeah. Until the teeth flew out of his head. Yeah. So I did like the movie both because of all of the things that it showed me that I didn't know but but it feels like maybe an example of one of the of, of a film where the lead actor is so beautiful and so captivating that that stands in for sympathy at least initially like you want him to live you you want to watch him just because he's because he's pretty and then as the film unfolds, you can make him look ugly. He looks uglier and uglier and uglier, but you still have, but the, you know, even at the very end when he's gaunt and his teeth are falling out, he still has very long fluttering eyelashes. <laughs> and so you never feel like, ugh, you know, get the, get this gross pile of bones off the screen. You know, you, <laughs> you're like, no, 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 he'll make it to America. He'll meet, he'll meet a nice girl. Come on, please. this was a beautiful movie that i enjoyed watching and looking at i guess um but i enjoyed it more on an academic level than i did on an emotional level which is an emotional level being the way i prefer to enjoy a movie um i would say that anyone who hasn't seen it should see it i mean we've painted a fairly bleak picture of a bleak film I think it should be seen, but maybe not in the context of a Friday night, get a couple of pizzas and the gang over to the house and uh, drink some Vino Verdes and watch a movie. Like, this isn't it. Wow, what a specific lifestyle you have, Adam. (laughs) Hey, gang, come on over. I've got the Vino Verdes. (laughs) 
I uh, I had a crate and barrel catalog open on my desk, and I and my eyes just found a scene in it. <laughs> the hell is a vino verde? It's a refreshing green wine. It was jammy, plummy, dense, and chewy. Do we have a guy in this film of maybe eight characters? <laughs> ben, who's your guy? Uh, I I uh I really liked the character of the quartermaster in the uh, in the first scene. He's the last character who does any kind of unqualified kindness to our main character. He was a, a big relief because he managed to say some things that weren't just naked exposition with no <laughs> no character around them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he like gives him a bunch of yams and is, uh, is, is kind to him. It's the last time that happens. That's a good guy. John, did you have a guy? Uh, my guy was the American soldier on the truck who was like, get the Japs (laughs) and just shot his gun into the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) That little moment of the American soldier was very my guy. (laughs) (laughs) In a film that is in so many ways about counting your bullets, like that was the epitome of, of the American side. Just a guy with so many bullets, he can afford to shoot him in the ground. Who is your guy, Adam? My guy was the guy on a date who, uh, who brought his lady oh, friend on. over to the island in the rope. Come on. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Guy. I think <laughs> I'm going to tell you a fun story. Like, uh, what's the worst date you've ever been on that, that started from a flawed, pre- <laughs> a flawed premise? <laughs> I, <laughs> so really quickly, huh? my guy is a guy who brought a date into a war zone and then proceeded to start making out with her inside uh, an abandoned hut, like 30 feet away from a pile of skeletons. And then uh, his girlfriend gets shot. Tamura shoots her. And, uh, and this guy runs off, gets into the boat, and, uh, and goes home. That's a pretty bad date. Yeah. He did, <laughs> he first, did survive the date. Yeah, and I guess I guess that's that's a win, and on some scoreboards. <laughs> oh man, her dad is going to be so mad when he comes back. <laughs> the worst date I ever went on proceeded from the premise of: Would you like to go see uh, the movie Jonestown, the <laughs> the documentary about the Jonestown cult and uh, the People's Temple and Jim Jones? Uh, that was our first date. That was the first date with my wife. Wow. And we often talk about what a terrible decision that was for a first date. And so this guy's profoundly flawed first date concept is what makes him my guy. They did not go on a second date, unfortunately, unlike me, (laughs) who went on to marry my wife. Congratulations, Adam. (laughs) Guys, uh, normally we have... uh, great moments in internet pedantry about these movies that we watch here. And I think this movie is either too obscure or too old to have any IMDb uh, dorkazoids writing what they got wrong in it. So I didn't, I couldn't find anything for this movie. Did you guys notice anything that we could be pedantic about for a minute? I mean, I definitely feel like the, um, like every encounter they have with the enemy it's basically that they got some firecrackers and threw them out into the dirt, and then yeah, that definitely brought me out of the movie. The uh, the tank shells hitting the mud definitely were charges planted in the mud, and not things hitting the mud and blowing it up. Right. Also, would would they explode like that if they were impacting mud that soft? Because they show the guys going through that mud, and it's like they're like up to their waists and just gloppy, gloppy mud. Yeah. I feel like we are definitely scraping the bottom of the barrel here in terms of trying to indict this film. Yeah, they really struggled with mud continuity. <laughs> there was an interesting thing about this movie, which is that it takes place on, on Leyte. It was an enormous battle, and a huge effort was spent to take that island over. But that all happened in the fall of 1944. And this movie takes place in 
the spring of 45, I think that the setting was that this was now a mop-up operation for the U.S. Army. They were on their way further up the chain, right? They were there. Yeah, well, I mean, the guys driving around in trucks are definitely not acting like they are driving through a hot war zone. Yeah, right. They're just driving from one place to another. They feel like this argument is settled, and all of our Japanese characters are the guys that didn't get out, and they don't really realize that they could conceivably be captured and given some food and a, and a warm bed. Um, that is not an incontinuity. It was just a weird thing for weird thing. As I was watching the film, you very seldom. And I think it's cause we don't watch a lot of movies that are filmed from the loser's point of view, but a, a weird thing to think about that. The army that you're fighting has just blown past you and you're just in an eddy just kind of wandering around it was a, it, it took me maybe the whole film to figure that out. Cause I kept waiting for the Americans to come over the pill. You know, my dad was there. He flew supplies into Leyte. So I'd heard about this battle my whole life, but you just never think about like, well, the war's not over and they didn't get everybody off that Island. Like how do you end a war is such a strange thing to consider. Like this is the end. What are they doing this for? How do you get the word out? It also makes me wonder, like, I mean, like, I guess the Vietnam War would be the obvious as a, uh, a thought experiment. But, like, if, if we made a movie about uh, an American soldier in, a, in, like, the kind of waning days of the Vietnam War or even potentially after the Vietnam War was over, where his experience was this desperate and futile... Like, what would that mean to an American audience? Like, how, like, we've, we, our culture has never produced anything like this, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I don't know if we could. Like, I don't know if a studio would have the nerve to finance a film like this in the US. Uh, I know that it would be exquisitely controversial if such a movie was ever created. And I think that really crystallizes how remarkable it is for me. Well, yeah, it's that, it's that thing we were talking about at the start. Like, there's no place in the world as an American that you could be so far from home that there isn't the possibility of suddenly a helicopter arriving and airlifting you back to Wiesbaden, Germany, where you are given antibiotics. And McDonald's. Yeah, right. Like, there's nowhere, there is no American soldier that would ever be abandoned. That's like right on the... When you sign up for the army, they're like, we won't abandon you. Is there a comparable state of bleak abandonment that an American could even ever experience? I'm sure we've left people behind, you know, like we pledge not to, but that's the thing about war. There are always people that get completely fucked over. Well, the, the using the POW MIA argument, except that was... I mean, you still see POW MIA flags flying all over the place. But that was largely, I think, a Chuck Norris-funded effort because throughout the entire 80s and 90s, there was never a single American POW discovered in Vietnam or Laos or Cambodia. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Like, we spent two decades fighting in American in the Congress about all the... POWs we left behind. Yeah, repatriating all these. But there were none. I mean, they were only in Gene Hackman movies and <laughs> and uh and Chuck Norris movies. There weren't there did they, that those camps didn't exist. We left and behind. And that guy is also never the main character. Right. Yeah, right. They're totally just some the heroic guy that's going in and getting him. They're skeletal guys behind a bamboo fence that have for some inexplicable reason been kept and tortured by their Vietnamese captors for 20 years after the war is over. Ah, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to question you some more. Question them about what? <laughs> what does this guy possibly know? Yeah. We have uh we have a big long list of movies and uh they ain't going to watch themselves, gentlemen. Uh should we pick our next film? Adam. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's a 
the yeah. amount of enthusiasm that uh, we've come to expect from our throng of fans. Yep, there uh, it is. <laughs> we have uh, 54 movies on the list, John. Do you want to pick a number between 1 and 54? I have randomized the list once again. Oh, good. Oh, good. That's that's good. Random list. Well, yeah. in that case, let's go. Let's pick number two. Number two is a World War II film from 2014, directed by David Ayer. It is Fury. This is a movie that I put on the list. Oh, Fury, the tank movie with Brad Pitt. With Brad Pitt and Shia LaBeouf. Oh, Shia oh, LaBeouf with his with his star turn in this film. I was. Uh, I think I watched this movie on an airplane, so that kind of qualifies the. Uh, the memory of it, but I remember being like surprised at how much I liked it and how, uh, how interesting a take on world war two. I thought it was cause I, I don't think I'd ever seen a tank movie about world war two before this. Adam, have you seen this film? I have. And I remember, uh, having better feelings about it than I thought I would also. I think this is a film where, uh, we should budget at least 20 minutes of the program just to the IMDb pedants. <laughs> because. Oh, you think they'll be out in force? Oh, for sure I do. I think they're going to have a lot to say about this film. It, I think it's a romp. It's My yeah. recollection of it is that it's a, I mean, it's it's not a romp like, it's not fun. It's bleak too. Uh, we've done planes we've done submarines we've done infantry i'm excited to get into a tank yeah tank film but uh, yeah i do feel like i feel like we're gonna have to wade through some uh some (laughs) fairly extensive list of historical inaccuracies if if having if if my recollection of watching this film is any god there were a few minutes where i felt like logging on to imdb and saying Actually, <laughs> were there abs like this back in the forties? <laughs> Was Macklemore super popular in the forties? Why does everybody have his haircut? <laughs> yeah, uh, we should thank uh, Rob Schulte, who uh, is our talented producer editor. Thanks, and uh, with that, come back next week to the victor of the spoiler alerts. This has been Friendly Fire. <laughs> Thanks, Undercooked Yam. <laughs> Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast. Hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. Produced by Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at Benjamin AHR. Adam is at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.